Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. As promised, dear listener, it is Axe Murder Month. Are we going to get a little shredding metal guitar in the, in the <laughs> background there, some kind of a sting? Mm-hmm. Do you have something like that ready, Carrie? <laughs> Okay, that was pretty good. Uh, it is <laughs> it is Axe Murder March here on the pod. Uh, w- was it actually March last year when we did Axe Murder? It was, because I remember it was my birthday month, and um, it seemed very targeted <laughs> that you chose to do all Axe Murders for my birthday month. Well, it was primarily, it's not like they were all a bunch of wives murdering their, uh, husbands murdering their wives with axes. It was like a, a bunch of random slayings for the most part no no one of them did target italians well we don't need to talk about that but if the <laughs> uh, listener wants to know more you can go back and check out our x-man of new orleans episode from last year uh this year carrie it's all about the ladies for axe murder month it is and we are kicking it off really big with two weeks on a figure who I guess when we kind of took stock of this month, I was a little surprised to realize, like, oh, yeah, we haven't covered this person yet. Well, like some other big names, you know, your Ted's Bundy and such. Your Jeffrey's Dahmer. Your Jeffrey's Dahmer. Uh, your John Wayne's Gacy's. <laughs> jo- John's Wayne Gacy. <laughs> yes. Um you know, it, they just seem like such big subjects. And some of these, you know, were things that we've been wanting to tackle forever, like Titanic that we just got to and Jack the Ripper that we did for our hundredth. So I think now we're in a good place. We have our, our feet firmly on the ground when it comes to how to do this podcast. And I think we can do this topic justice. Awesome. So you've got Dahmer ready for April? <laughs> Not yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, this, but this, uh, this is going to be one that I, I'm really looking forward to. This is a story that I've known for a long time. So I'm going to start with a little, a little poem, Sean. Oh, wonderful! And, Just like our our Charles Guiteau uh, <laughs> uh, episode. Yeah, and see if you recognize this little snippet of poetry. Lizzie Borden took an axe. She gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Yes, I've, I've heard it sung uh, on the Disney television show Smart Guy. Oh, we'll talk about Smart Guy. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Many of us know this ghoulish little rhyme, and if you're in America, at least, you know the general story of Lizzie Borden. I think I probably learned about it from Disney Channel's mm-hmm. Smart Guy. Uh, the general gist, you know, the Wikipedia synopsis, people think at least she killed her parents with an axe back in Victorian-ish times and got away with the murders. I would say that most people probably believe she did it and just beat the justice system at their own game, but most don't know the details of the case, nor the possible other culprits of the crime. But if they did know the details, would their opinion change at all we'll have to check at the end of next episode okay i can't wait because most of what i know i know from just looking into this woman's eyes in in the one (laughs) photograph i've seen of of lizzie borden there is something about her eyes that are kind of haunting she does look capable of murder is all that i'm saying (laughs) you're not a curly bangs fan it's more the eyes (laughs) 
Yes, this month we'll be beginning our trip through the feminine side of axe murder with one of the biggies, the story of Lizzie Borden and how the murder of her father, Andrew, and stepmother, Abby, became one of the first national true crime obsessions. So as I mentioned, Lizzie Borden is a character now sort of affixed into the national firmament of mythology, much like Jack the Ripper is over in the UK. Can I say, I think it's so important to encourage young women to get into male-dominated fields. Mm -hmm. And axe murdering is one that, uh, you know, at least in our past coverage, um, we really just, there's been a gender gap. Mm. Well, so, I'll leave the encouragement up to you, Sean. I'm excited to close the gender gap. Is Very all woke of you. Lizzie Borden now is kind of an American personality, you know, a Johnny Appleseed or a Paul Bunyan, but just a, a little bit darker than those folk heroes. Many of us grew up knowing her story. I'm sure I first heard about Lizzie Borden probably on one of the twisted history or ghost shows my dad used to watch with me as a child. But as you mentioned, Sean, the first time I remember really digesting the case was through an episode of the Disney Channel TV show, Smart Guy. Yeah, and there was Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. It was that kind of a tune. Mm-hmm. For our younger listeners, this was pre-Hannah Montana days. This was the area of Zoog Disney and Halloween Town back in the late 90s and early 2000s. In this 1998 episode of the three-season-long show titled Diary of a, Man, a Mad Schoolgirl, our titular smart guy, TJ, is paired with a girl named Janice for a school assignment on the Borden murders, which is... Kind of a, a crazy assignment and very much cooler than anything I got to do in middle school. Well, he was in high school. Still. I <laughs> <laughs> remember the, the whole premise of the show was he was like... Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I didn't get to do any assignments about murder in high school, I don't think. No. No. Maybe we weren't taking the right classes. Uh, maybe. So the, uh, the episode um, continues from that point in the vein of that one creepy episode of Boy Meets World. And then there was Sean, a.k.a. both were much darker and scarier than anything Disney Channel would even think to put out there nowadays. Of course, both of these episodes were my favorites of those respective shows. Is that the Boy Meets World one with Jennifer Love Hewitt? Yes. As Jennifer Love Pfefferman? Yes. Um... So in this smart guy episode, they recite the poem, as, as Sean so nicely sang for us. They give a little lip service to the crime. It's wild that an episode of a Disney Channel show centers around Lizzie Borden, of all things. Historical murderer, <laughs> Lizzie murderess. And they freak out the characters in the audience. And it stuck with me, of course. I always remembered the Borden case from then on out. Since my younger days, I've, I've visited the Borden House in Fall River, Massachusetts, and the Borden Graves nearby. We have a classy little bobblehead. We have a, yeah, that, that they sell in the gift shop at the Lizzie Borden House. By the way, you th if I have a problem with her eyes in, in the photograph. The bobblehead is distressing. <laughs> uh, they this give her like, like Emperor Palpatine evil veins on her face. <laughs> well, she's holding the axe, so they seem to really came, come down on that side of the equation. This is the first time I'm diving deep into the crime itself to try and determine who killed Andrew and Abby Borden, and if Lizzie was the true culprit after all. Because this is such a weighty topic in the true crime sphere, we have a variety of sources for this series. 
Uh, my main one is The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. And I also use the books Lizzie Borden, The Legend, The Truth, The Final Chapter by Arnold R. Brown. Wow, that sounds like a, the sixth movie in a series. <laughs> yes. And The Borden Murders, Lizzie Borden and the Trial of the Century by Sarah Miller, which interestingly is a young adult skewed novel. Uh, nonfiction version of the case. There you go. It's for uh, Taj Mowry doing his school project. <laughs> yes. And as a special treat for Sean, I'll also be using excerpts from Popular Crime by Bill James. Oh, uh, we uh, we do like Mr. James on this podcast. And actually, he, uh, he you know, more or less furnished a lot of the content for last Axe Murder Month. Yes. With the book, The Man from the Train. Exactly. So it seems fitting to bring it back full circle with the man himself, uh, James, not the one from the train. So let's begin with a little intro from Bill and then step back into the late 19th century for the story of Miss Lizzie Borden and the horror that befell the Borden family one steamy summer day in 1892. According to James, quote, the three essential facts about the Lizzie Borden case are... One, that it is almost impossible to see how Lizzie could have committed the crime. Two, that it is very, very difficult to understand how anyone else could have committed the crime. Three, that Lizzie made a number of statements about the case that were self-contradictory and in conflict with the testimony of other persons. It is difficult to see how Lizzie could have committed the crime because there simply was not time for her to have committed the crime, cleaned herself up, and disposed of the murder weapon. The time frame of the murders is very, very tight. Andrew Borden might have been attacked between 10.55 and 10.58 a.m. Lizzie yelled for the maid just after 11 a.m. These events are pinned in place by a long list of time-stamped observations. On the other hand, the alternative, the alternative explanation seems equally improbable, and Lizzie did make a number of apparently untrue statements about the crime. How do we figure it out? Great question. Um, I don't know. Let's take a look at this timeline and see how... Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe she just didn't get that... Me- I know it's hard not to get messy when you murder someone with an axe. There's also the fact, and this is going to be an issue no matter what, um, because it is a case from before 1900, and it seems like those cases have a lot of conflicting details. But even in just the three books that I mentioned, and I, I of course... Um, cross-checked everything with other sources online, there are slightly different details. You know, Bill James says that these these moments are time-stamped. Uh, and he, he says that she, she yells for the maid moments after 11 a.m., but other people say that she did it at 11.10, you know, which is 10 minutes. That's a huge difference. Right. That's changing clothes time. Right. And that's not against James because his source might have said 1101, but this other source says 1110. Another one might say 1115. So it's really hard to know what's the most correct. I, you know, back in the day, I mean, if you're going by those records, you, they might not even have it set in stone either. So I'm going to do my best to... <laughs> give all the facts, um, but some of them may be conflicting, and that's either because of conflicting testimony or just because the sources skew a little bit from source to source. But we're going to try our damnedest here at Ain't It Scary to come up with our own conclusion by the end of these episodes. So 
Let's begin with some backstory on the location of the murders, Fall River, Massachusetts, and the history of the Borden family to that point. Fall River is about 50 miles south of Boston, right on the border with Rhode Island. Uh, The area had been settled in 1656 thanks to its location on Mount Hope Bay, allowing it a deep water harbor with open access to the sea. And that's pretty much the basis for many colonial settlements at this time. They want something that they can get easily to by ship. Um, And you've been there, uh, obviously, in the modern era, Carrie. What's Mm -hmm. it like now, Fall River? I didn't go, like, I didn't spend a lot of time there. We actually um, stopped over for a couple hours on the way to Newport, Rhode Island, because it's really, really close. But, um, you know, it's like a, a small city sort of vibe. And the house definitely sticks out because it's original and everything around it has sort of grown up from there. But, um, you know, it seems like an interesting place. I would spend the day there for sure. I, uh, you know, I haven't been back yet, but I would love to take you. On the list. (laughs) Yeah. So at one time, Fall River was one of the leading textile manufacturing cities in the United States. And unfortunately, the city also acted as a sort of uh, as part of a trade route between New England, Africa and the southern states. So they would transport rum to Africa in exchange for slaves and the slaves would go to the south, which would send up molasses and cotton back to New England. So it was kind of part of a triangle. Eventually, much like here in Bridgeport, the textile industry moved on from Fall River. But you know who moved in, Sean? The Portuguese. Oh, I thought you were going to say the Bordens. No. Uh, There are tons of my brethren in Fall River, if you don't know. And it would be weird if you didn't know if you actually listened to all the the episodes. Uh, I am half Portuguese. My mom is from Portugal. Uh, If you're interested in Portuguese superstition and mythology, check out our Patreon for an episode with my mom about all of that. Um, So much fun. And yeah, there are tons of Portuguese people in Fall River and Rhode Island as well, enough that the Wikipedia page for the city even mentions that it's known for Portuguese culture, which is pretty cool. And um, it comes up a little bit in this trial, surprisingly. Interesting. But enough about my family. The Borden family was in Fall River quite early on, with at least one Borden being part of Anne Hutchinson's group when she was kicked out of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the early 1600s for heresy. By the 1700s, the third generation of Bordens were fully settled in the Fall River area, and they owned everything on both sides of the Taunton River. Oh, so they were like the richest people in town? They're, they did very well for themselves, probably by allying with someone like Anne Hutchinson, who had a following. And um, they were given this land by royal decree, or basically they probably bought it up. And then, you know, the royal decree was like, yeah, they own it. And this kind of canceled out, legally anyway, the Native American claim of eminent domain in the area. So perhaps this was one of the first sins of the Borden family that would only be a harbinger of what was to come. The Bordens at the center of the murder case were descendants of those 1700s Bordens, and they lived at uh, 92 Second Street near the commercial center of Fall River in the late 1800s. The family consisted of Andrew Borden, his second wife, Abby, his grown daughters, Emma and Lizzie, and the family's domestic servant, Bridget Sullivan, who they called Maggie, 
which was the name of an earlier maid they'd had. Oh, but it wasn't her name? No, her name was Bridget. <laughs> I think they had an Irish maid earlier that was named Maggie, and they just kept on calling Bridget Maggie. And they were like, well, that's your nickname now, because mm-hmm. we're just going to keep making the mistake anyway. Yeah, it's very charming. I guess. <laughs> Probably not for uh, Maggie. Bridget, yeah. Now, this was already close quarters for five adults, and sometimes Andrew's brother-in-law from his first marriage, John V. Morse, would also stay with the family. That's weird. His ex-wife's brother, or was she dead? She died. Uh, Emma and Lizzie were viewed as spinsters at the time, as both were past 30. Emma was 41, and Lizzie was, what's about to be my age, 32, and both didn't seem likely to marry. So it's like uh, in... It's a Wonderful Life when he sees Mary and she's... She's an old maid! Yeah, oh, you're an old maid! Like, she's 27 and her eyebrows are a little thick. Like, it's wild. She's wearing those glasses, though. Oh-ho. Those spinster glasses. Because Andrew Borden was relatively wealthy, wealthy uh, and he was quite wealthy, they didn't really have to marry to remain in comfort for the rest of their days like some other people would have. So think of them as the original boomerang kids, which is what many young adults living with their parents are called these days, apparently. They don't seem to have any designs on moving out or moving on. And so this family unit, for better or for worse, was stuck together indefinitely. So was there like, for Lizzie and her sister, was their long-term life plan just like Grey Gardens? I don't know if they had any plans. They did a little traveling. They had friends. They they visited with friends and stayed over and vacationed. Lizzie did a kind of a European tour for, I don't know if it was her 30th birthday, but one of her, her big birthdays, her dad gave her this like European tour. Um, so they did stuff. I just, I guess, I don't, I don't know if they were gay. You know, a lot a lot of people of the time, both men and women, um, did not marry because they weren't interested in who they were expected to marry. Um, there are certainly whiffs of homosexuality around the story. Uh, actually, the closer to present you get, you'll you see that represented in media. For example, there was just a movie where. Um, yeah, Lizzie was in like a lesbian relationship uh, with Chloe Sevigny or she was Lizzie, something like that. Kristen Stewart was involved. And that somehow fed into the motivation for the murder? I'm sure in the mo- I haven't seen the movie yet, but I, you know, it makes sense that it would be. Um, but there have been whispers just because two spinster ladies living together, you know, bachelor sisters, that's weird. Just like bachelor brothers would have been viewed as that. The bachelor brothers, babe. <laughs> that's a comedy bang bang bit. Oh, God. <laughs> the Borden home was not a particularly happy one. Andrew Borden, for many accounts, seems like quite a difficult man to get along with. Tall, gaunt, and severe looking, his appearance matched his general demeanor. He was self-made with a fortune of over a quarter million dollars by the time of his death. Uh, And he earned this through a combination of financial strategy and plain hard work. That translates to just over $8 million today. And I've seen different, I think on last podcast, they said he had half a million dollars, which would be uh, around 15, 16 million today. This is just one of the sources. He was a millionaire in today's standards. One newspaper reported, quote, he was what is called close-fisted, but square and just in his dealings. 
So he's cheap. He's a bit of a miser, but an honest miser. He had begun his career as a cabinet maker, even constructing coffins, before branching out into commercial investments, serving as president of the Union Savings Bank and as a member of various boards and company groups in the area. He was big on real estate and owned a lot of property, both commercial and rural, in the area of Fall River. But dis- On both sides of the river. <laughs> well, probably, yeah. But despite his wealth, Andrew was, again, a bit of a miser. The Bordens had moved into their home on 2nd Street in 1871, but it wasn't an upgrade. It was really just kind of a side grade. Uh, During renovations, he removed the upstairs faucet from the home, leaving only sinks in the kitchen and cellar to be serviced by a cold water tank. So he, like, downgraded the bathroom situation. (laughs) Well, this is kind of like George Harry Storrs. Remember, he moved into that big house. But it was just him and his wife and a couple of yeah, servants. Yeah, but at least so. the house was big. This wasn't even a big house. Yeah, but they left half the rooms closed and unused. Yeah. He installed a flushable toilet in the cellar the next oh, year. Oh, see, that's a splurge. But that was it. While many of the homes in the area, even like middle class homes, had modern plumbing and conveniences, Borden refused any such luxuries. If two folks had to answer the call of nature at the same time, the other would have to use the shitter outside. So it was that kind of vibe. It's called a shitter? It's an outhouse, but, you know, (laughs) Paul Ferrante calls it a shitter. (laughs) So as you had asked, um, Borden's first wife, Sarah Morris, had married him in 1845 and died of what was referred to as uterine congestion and disease of the spine in 1863. Ugh. I don't know what uterine congestion means. Yeah, I've got this cough in my uterus. just won't clear <sighs> up. Uh, in, in the time between their marriage and her death, she bore him three daughters, two of which, Emma and Lizzie, Emma being the older, survived infancy. Two years after Sarah's death in 1865, Andrew remarried, this time to Abby Gray, a 37-year-old spinster with family in unpredictable financial straits. He's like, ah, like my daughters. <laughs> yeah. Andrew needed a homemaker and mother for his daughters. I think um, Emma was either 12 or 14 when her mother died. And for Abby, the prospect of marriage at her age must have been a relief. Um, but the relief wouldn't last long. Uh-oh. Emma refused her as a mother figure, uh, referring to her always as Abby and never mother, which was the expected standard of the time. Emma also promised Sarah Borden on her deathbed that she would always watch over baby Lizzie and so likely saw herself in that mothering role rather than this, what she thought was a stranger. Certainly an interloper. Yes. Lizzie herself, she was much younger, uh, she did call Abby mother initially, but always still preferred to go to Emma for her problems, and was also said to have a special rapport with her father, who she had actually been partially named after. Lizzie Andrew Borden was her full name. So her first name was not Elizabeth. Um, She changes it later. It's not Elizabeth. It's Lizzie Andrew Borden. Andrew. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Now, for instance, Andrew did not wear a wedding ring to mark his marriage to Abby, but did wear a thin gold ring Lizzie had given him right up until his death. He didn't wear a wedding ring? Not for Abby, no. That's weird. Mm-hmm. 
Lizzie would later say, quote, I never liked him for anything that I wanted very much that I didn't get, though sometimes I had to ask two or three times. So basically, there wasn't anything he wouldn't give her, but sometimes she had to prod him. For someone like Andrew Borden, who seems kind of a tough old bastard, this is sort of an interesting dynamic. The Borden daughters seem to have more say in the running of the house than their stepmother and received their own allowances for whatever they may have wanted, while Abby's money had to go to the household expenses. The girl's allowance, however, was set at a measly $4 a week for years, which apparently was equivalent to the weekly salary of a spinner. So like a kind of a low class job. But again, they're not working, so. One, presumably they have room and board at the house. Well, yeah, they're living there. They're living there for free. The final nail in the coffin of Abby's attempts at a motherly relationship with her stepdaughters was hammered home in 1887. Abby's father passed away, leaving his home to his wife, Jane, which was Abby's stepmother, and their daughter, Sarah, Abby's half-sister. Jane wanted to sell her half of the property, but Sarah could not buy the share. She was too young or she didn't have the money. So Abby asked Andrew if he would purchase the half interest and put it in Abby's name to allow Sarah and her husband to live in the house rent free. So kind of a a nice thing to do. Uh, Emma and Lizzie, however, objected intensely to this arrangement, feeling that what he did for Abby, he should do for his own flesh and blood, namely them. Uh Uh-huh. Andrew tried to appease the girls by transferring property of equal value into their names, but the girls were not satisfied. Well, but that's exactly what they asked for. Well, they didn't like it. So Andrew's purchase of Abby's family home to help out her half-sister just deepened the chasm between the girls and Abby to the point where they would refuse to eat meals with their stepmother. And Lizzie began to call her Mrs. Borden instead of mother and expressed her ill feelings about Abby to anyone who asked. I mean, at that point, you would prefer Abby, right? When she's on Mrs. Borden. Yeah. When a dressmaker referred to Abby as Lizzie's mother in 1892, the same year year of the murders... It's not my dad. It's my stepdad. (laughs) Lizzie chastised the dressmaker, insisting, quote, Don't say that to me, for she is a mean, good-for-nothing thing. Thing! Mm -hmm. So we've got old miser Andrew, his quiet and defeated second wife, Abby and two strong-willed spinster daughters living in the same confined quarters. Andrew's insistence at not showing off his wealth only made things more socially difficult for the Borden's daughters, uh, even more so than, you know, anything else, because they were still unmarried, because he wouldn't live in the popular neighborhood of the hill. So the girls existed in a kind of quarantine from the the real goings-on in Fall River. So they... In order to get married, they would have had to kind of be in society, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that they were, but they were still kind of on the outskirts just because Andrew was such a miser that he didn't want to live where everyone else in their same social strata lived. And where you lived was everything because all anyone did was just walk around going from house to house visiting people, you know? Even worse, as the upstairs of the Second Street home didn't have a central hallway, one would have to go through the other bedrooms to get to the different rooms on the second floor. You would go through Lizzie's room to get to the Borden's and through Lizzie's room to get to Emma's. So no matter what, you're going through Lizzie's room. 
Well, the only way to avoid this was to take the back stairs on the first floor, which would open into the Borden's room. Um, But otherwise, there was a severe lack of privacy. And with five adults in constant forced proximity, the Borden home was a bit of a powder keg ready to explode. And explode it would. Mm -hmm. In June uh, 1891, just a year before the double murder that would make the Borden family name infamous, a strange crime occurred at the Second Street home. Abby's jewelry had apparently been gone through and some was missing, including a gold watch and a chain of sentimental value. Andrew's desk had also been rifled through and was missing about $80 in cash, $25 to $30 in gold, and a few commemorative streetcar tickets, which I don't know what they are, but apparently they were notable enough to mention. <laughs> um, yeah, commemorative streetcar tickets. I don't, I don't even know. Uh, like from his first date with Abby or something. <laughs> Although the theft occurred in the middle of the day, none of the women present in the house, Emma, Lizzie, and Bridget the maid, had heard a sound. When the police arrived, Lizzie excitedly led them on a house tour and showed them the lock on the downstairs cellar door, which may have been forced open with a six or eight penny nail. Lizzie herself suggested that, quote, someone might have come in that way. So it really smacks of a little bit of a guilty party inserting themselves into a crime scene. A la... What's his name? The foot fetish. Uh, Ed Kemper. Ed Kemper. Yeah. Uh, and the police definitely noticed Lizzie's strange behavior. If someone had broken into the cellar, they had somehow made it upstairs in the middle of the day into the Borden bedroom, which was in the back and thieved their items without being spotted or heard by three different women present in the home. Unless they knew about the back staircase, I don't know, but unless they rolled like a nat 20 for stealth, it's pretty (laughs) far-fetched. So Andrew may have had his own suspicions, considering that the Borden bedroom could only have been accessed by passing through Lizzie's. Eventually, he called off the investigation and attempted to keep word of the crime out of the papers, seemingly indicating that he thought the thief may have been closer to home than he would have preferred the press and public to know about. I mean, we know they hated the stepmom, and we know that they wanted more money. They didn't mm-hmm. feel their dad was giving them enough money. So I guess. He began to lock his bedroom every day and leave the key in the sitting room in plain sight and also lock the connecting door between his room and Lizzie's, presumably only getting in the back way unless he was using the key. The suspicions didn't end there and things got even weirder days before the murders of Andrew and Abby. So what year are we in now? 1892 and we're in the same month, same week. On August 2nd, 1892, the Bordens ate leftover swordfish for dinner. I'm going to assume that, considering they barely had plumbing in the home, they didn't have a modern refrigeration system either. And I'm talking about modern for the time, not now. Right. So they have like an ice box that they're using to keep fish for 24 hours? If that. So this was fish that was probably left out in some way after it was cooked, and that August had been oppressively hot. So you do the math. Um, Andrew and Abby spent that evening presumably shitting and puking their brains out. Did the girls have the dinner? Bridget and Lizzie experienced some minor food poisoning systems. Emma was not at the home at this time. 
Now, people would often suffer from these issues in the summer. Uh, they were called the summer complaint, <laughs> which is a very nice way to say I was in the bathroom Monsters all night. Revenge, yeah. yeah. Um, but despite this, Abby felt like this particular experience was not the norm. So much so that the following morning, she went across the street to Dr. Seabury Bowen's house and confided in the man that she thought she had been poisoned, and not just by E. coli or salmonella. Bowen agreed to visit the Borden home and check things out, check on Andrew, but Andrew angrily refused him entrance to the point where he blocked the doctor getting into the home and yelled at him that he wouldn't pay for the visit. Now, this could be Andrew's just cheapness. It could be embarrassment at, I shouldn't have left that fish out and poisoned my whole family. Well, it didn't end with this either. That night, Andrew, Abby, and Bridget all fell ill after a meal of mutton stew, but Lizzie remained fine. How long had that been sitting out? We don't know, but again, it's still hot. The summer complaint. However, Lizzie paid a visit to her friend Alice Russell the same night and confessed that she was worried the family's milk had been poisoned, alluding to nonspecific threats made to her father by nonspecific men. She didn't give any real details. Lizzie, the milk tastes off because you don't have a refrigerator. (laughs) Alice reassured Lizzie that she was certain no one was after them, but Lizzie's fear wasn't quelled. She stated, quote, I feel as if something was hanging over me that I cannot throw off, and it comes over me at times, no matter where I am. I don't know, but somebody will do something. She didn't realize, or I don't know, maybe she did, that her fears would be coming true within the next 24 hours. So after the break, we'll finally get to the crime, the double murder of Andrew and Abby Borden, and the initial investigation into who could have possibly committed such a heinous act in such a regular small town. Okay, 81 Wax coming up. Well, not exactly. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Welcome back. When last we left you, we had set up a powder keg of a late 1800s home with Abby, Andrew, Lizzie, and Emma Borden, uh, and Bridget Maggie the maid. (laughs) Um, Bridget slash Maggie all crammed together into a pressure cooker of tension leading up to that fateful morning in 1892. Um, Carrie, not a lot of famous murders happen in the morning. Yeah. I don't know. I assume. (laughs) Because the night times the dark and evil time. Yeah. I mean, Jack the Ripper wasn't running around 10 in the morning. Well, uh, what he was doing, I don't think he could have really accomplished what he did uh, in the harsh light of day. But we are at the day of the crime, August 4th, 1892. Now, it was quite an inconvenient day for murder. 
Well, <laughs> uh, perhaps the most convenient one, depending on which side of the axe you were on. Yeah, if you're on the sharp slash blunt side <laughs> of the axe, a lot of times these are bludgeonings. Um, if you're on the wrong side of that axe, I don't know how much it matters what time of, what time of day. It's this, this is going to be inconvenient. Well, this happened to be the day of the annual policeman's picnic. So pretty much all the law enforcement in Fall River was over in Rocky Point near Providence, Rhode Island, ostensibly grilling up some burgers and dogs and blasting Skinnerd over the boombox or something like that. The circumstances actually kind of remind me in a weird way of the John Benet Ramsey case because the police response was really hampered by it being Christmas time and everyone being away and just a lot of the weird reactions that the family had and, and inviting bunches of people over, uh, which we'll get to. It, there are just a lot of weird parallels. And of course, that one's a very suspect but unsolved crime as well. Another nighttime murder. Well, or very early morning. That's nighttime. That's dark times. <laughs> the only person left on duty uh, in charge was Chief Marshal Rufus Hilliard, who would be one of the first responders to the report of murder at 92 Second Street. And the police began the day surprised and kept getting even more so, starting with the fact that violent crime barely ever occurred in Fall River in the first place. When Hilliard received a call reporting trouble at the Borden house, he dispatched one of his very small remaining force, patrolman George Allen. Allen literally ran over to the Borden home. Was the alert for trouble or for like Just trouble a double at, homicide? Uh, trouble at the Borden house. Okay. This is like uh, this is like George Harry stores again, where the guys were sent <laughs> over for like a, a break in and then an attempted murder. Yeah, and George was not expecting what he found. When he got inside, he saw Andrew Borden hacked to pieces, at least from the neck up, on the living room sofa, with no murder weapon or obvious clues in sight. Wow! When you say hacked to pieces, the head is pretty much destroyed. Alan, understandably shook, asked a passerby named Charles Sawyer to stand watch over the home while he ran back to the police station for some much-needed backup. He's like, oh, this is much more than just trouble. Sometime around this point, Adelaide Churchill looked out her window to see her neighbor, Lizzie Borden, standing just inside the Borden screen door. Adelaide opened up her window and called out, what's the matter? I assume maybe she saw Lizzie's expression or something. Oh, this is just a Mrs. Kravitz. Type. Oh, yeah. She's nosy for sure. Um, Lizzie responded, oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. Okay. So not exactly the invite one would expect for a spontaneous social function. Do come over. But it appears Adelaide did go over as the tea was simply too scalding to miss. <laughs> While waiting for the police, Adelaide became the first to put many questions to Lizzie. Where were you? Was first. Lizzie replied that she had been in the barn by the house looking for a piece of iron to make a sinker out of for a fishing line and had returned to the house when she heard a strange noise. Uh, these are the kinds of things I imagine the, the idly and uselessly rich doing, I guess. Well, we'll get to it, but I think she was planning on going with a on some sort of fishing trip with friends soon, but I think it was like at least in a week or two. And Lizzie can't buy her own bobbers? She doesn't have much to do, you know? So you might as well just make stuff. What else is she doing, you know? 
So Adelaide next asked where Abby Borden was at this moment. And Lizzie responded that Abby had received a note from a sick friend and left the home. Two more neighbors arrived on the scene following Lizzie's calls, Dr. Bowen from across the street and Lizzie's close friend, Alice Russell. Dr. Bowen proceeded to examine Andrew. Um, There wasn't much help he could give him. You can still find crime scene photos from the Borden murders, but I have to warn you, Andrew's in particular is incredibly graphic. It's like Jack the Ripper level. I was going to say worse or better than um, well, the Mary Kelly photo. You just, from the neck up, you, there's, you can't tell anything human there. So it depends on your perspective. Um, he's splayed out on a Victorian style couch, slumped over. His head is a mess of dark matter and not much else. It's one of those instances where you're grateful for black and white. After emerging from this examination quite shaken, Bowen left to wire Emma Bowden, uh, Borden about the incident, with Emma still being in Fairhaven, visiting friends about 30 miles away. And she had been gone for a couple weeks. She had not stayed at the house or whatever since she'd left. Bridget voiced her concerns about Abby and wanted to ask Abby's half-sister where she might be. Strangely, at this point, Lizzie then said that she thought Abby had actually returned and gone upstairs. This is one of those contradictory statements that Bill James was talking about. Because she had made a statement like a minute before, oh, she's at her sister's, or at her friend's. Yeah, she's, she got a note and she left. So Bridget, Adelaide, and Alice were all taken aback by this because she had just said that Abby had gone out. She hadn't made any mention of her returning. But Adelaide offered to accompany the very reluctant Bridget upstairs but they barely made it past the entrance to the second floor when from the stairwell, Adelaide caught sight of Mrs. Borden laying on the guest bedroom floor. So it's one of those situations where you go up the stairs and the floor is kind of flush with your head at a certain point. So when you're peeking over the landing, you can see into the rooms nearby. Yeah, so if the door's open on your way up the stairs, you can't help but see the floor of it's that room. It's quite hard to miss, Yeah. Adelaide, um, they rushed back and Alice asked, is there another? To which Alice responded, or Adelaide responded, yes. Lizzie's reaction was, oh, I shall have to go to the cemetery myself. What? I assume this is a reference to visiting her father's grave, like, like, I'll have to go by myself because my stepmother's dead, too? Yes, it's a weird reference to make in the circumstances, absolutely. I don't know what she quite means by that. I mean, people process grief in different ways, Yeah, that's a weird thing to say. Mm-hmm. Upon his return from wiring Emma, Dr. Bowen examined this new body, much to his chagrin, I expect. Initially, he thought Abby had died of fright, I'm not exactly sure why, aside from he may not have seen her injuries in the position she was in. Um, You could see pictures. She's sort of curled over from a kneeling position on the floor with her head down to the floor next to the guest bedroom's bed. However, it became obvious that she was surrounded by coagulated blood on the carpet, and it was less fresh than Andrew's, making clear that she had been killed first before him. Bowen, thankfully, did not attempt to move the body. Um, Mrs. Borden was on the heavier side and I mean, hopefully he also thought, yeah, I probably shouldn't touch her before the police come back. 
Officers Michael Mullally and Patrick Doherty arrived back on the scene soon after. At this point, Mrs. Borden's body was turned over, revealing the extent of her injuries and making the cause of death quite apparent. She had been hit with a hatchet multiple times. Yes, it wasn't an actual axe. It was a small axe. It was a hatchet that the Bordens were killed with, but we'll grandfather it in for the purpose of the month's theme. Oh, a a hatchet is an axe. (laughs) Bowen would later remark, quote, Physician that I am and accustomed to all sorts of horrible sights, it sickened me. By the time Bowen's preliminary examinations were over, the cry of murder swept through the city of Fall River like a typhoon. Police officers began arriving in force, perhaps hailed back home from their little picnic. Murder! Murder! (laughs) And this attracted a ton of looky-loos to the scene. By the next morning, over 1,500 spectators were gathered outside the Borden home. What were they hoping to see? I don't know. It was boring. It's just like a a summer day in Fall River in the Victorian era. It's a break from visiting your neighbors and eating some rancid fish. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, it was a full day for sure. During all of this, a rough timeline was being put together by police led by Assistant Marshal John Fleet. Again, I'm going to do my best to include all the details, but accounts do vary from book to book. It's hard to gauge what was contemporary facts and what's become a part of the story over time, but here's sort of the best I can figure from across the different narratives. From what police could gather at this point, Abby and Andrew, still suffering from apparent food poisoning from the mutton stew the night before, and then the swordfish from the night before that, uh, they ate breakfast at about 7 a.m. with their house guest John Morse, Andrew's brother-in-law. So though Emma Borden was away at the time of the crime, John had been staying over, bad timing on his part, so there were still five people sleeping in the home. Mm-hmm. For breakfast, they ate cold mutton and mutton soup. Um, So how about a break from the mutton? After you're shitting your brains out from mutton, don't eat the mutton. Presumably this is part of the same batch of mutton. (sighs) And they also had Johnny Cakes, coffee, and tea. Morse left the house at 845-ish to visit relatives that lived on Waybosset Street, which Google Maps tells me is at least nowadays about a 25-minute walk away. Could have been easier shorter back in the day with less roads and buildings in between but that's you know 20 to 25 minutes at 8 50 a.m lizzie ate a light breakfast of cookies and coffee avoiding the mutton and she was dining alone since emma was out of town at 9 15 andrew left the house to take care of some business downtown and abby asked bridget to wash the outside windows Around 9.30, Abby went upstairs to make the guest bed, and it must have been some time near here when she was struck with 19 blows, not 40 whacks. 19 whacks. Okay, well, listen. I... Why do they say, why do they say 40 in the song? It, it's not even a rhyme. The, the, the 40 isn't important I for the rhyme. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the 41 is... 21 would be fine. Sure. Still would have been wrong, but sure. I don't know. It's a children's rhyme. It shouldn't be. London Bridge never fell down either, Sean. According to the later autopsy, there were multiple wounds to uh, Abby's skull and neck, with most, if not all, having impacted on the back of the body. So being hit from behind, that she falls forward, probably keeps being hit from there, from above. Do we know sharp side or blunt side of the axe? 
so I saw the picture from the autopsy. Um, either way, it's not much there. You know, she. it looks like, and this is a different angle than you'll see. If you look up, if, if you want to, look up the crime scene photos, photos, you'll see the same one of Andrew kind of splayed out on the couch. And that one's very graphic. But the one of Mrs. Borden, you just see her backside and her knees kind of like she's bent over. You don't see the front of her body. She's bent away from you. But the autopsy picture, it does show her head and there's not much left. The force shattered her skull, made mincemeat of her, basically. So a lot of people think this must have been some sort of crime of passion or, you know, not just trying to steal or, 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 you know, like there must have been some sort of anger behind it because of how gruesome and violent it was. Was there money missing? I don't believe so, but we'll get into that next episode when we get more into the investigation. So Abby dies sometime around after 9.30 a.m. Andrew Borden, none the wiser to his second wife's death, arrived back home from his errands at 10.45 or so a.m. He fumbled with the lock for a while, but the door had been bolted from the oh, inside. So she's already been laying dead for over an hour by the time he gets home. Yes. And so Bridget had to try and open it for him from the inside. Um, and she was having trouble. She apparently swore or something while she was fiddling with this lock to open it, causing Lizzie to laugh. And uh, she remembered this, Bridget, because Lizzie was descending at this time from the front landing directly opposite the open door of the guest bedroom where Abby must have been lying dead. So she's coming down the stairs. Now, remember, Adelaide going up the stairs immediately saw the dead body there. But now Lizzie would be facing away from the body. No, it's parallel both times. So if you're going up the stairs, it's on your left. If you're going down the stairs, it's on your right, at least from what I can gather. I mean, she doesn't have that eye level thing, but still, there's a dead woman crouched in a pool of blood. And the door bedroom. was open. Um, that that has been established. So it would have been strange for Lizzie to not see the body, considering it was immediately apparent to Adelaide when she cleared the stair landing. But perhaps, you know, not impossible for her not to see it if she just didn't look at all in that direction. And maybe she had a bad perif, you know, who knows? Once Andrew got into the house, he removed his bedroom key from the sitting room and went up the back stairs to his bedroom, which would have prevented him from seeing Abby in the guest room. He didn't go up the main stairs. He came back downstairs and Lizzie greeted him and asked about the mail. According to, to whom? Um, this, I'm, this doesn't say whether it was Lizzie who said that she did this. But Bridget was vaguely around, so I don't know if she corroborated. He, in turn, asked about Abby and was told by Lizzie that she'd gone out after receiving a note. So, again, I don't know if this is Lizzie or Bridget's perspective. Um, Andrew took off his coat and went onto the sofa in the sitting room for a nap, which neither Lizzie or Bridget remarked upon as being unusual. This is a guy in, I think, his 60s, maybe 70s. Um, He had an early morning. I don't know. He had diarrhea the last two days. (laughs) Yeah, he's not doing great. So sometime between 1045 and 11, 
10 or so a.m., likely closer to 11 o'clock itself, he too was murdered as he slept, struck 10 times with uh, with a hatchet. So Lizzie would discover him one way or another, whether she already knew he was there or she was freshly finding him. She gave her father nine plus one. (laughs) Yeah, 10 or 11 wax doesn't really uh, fit. So she discovers him around 11.10. At this time, Bridget was in her third floor bedroom. She's kind of secreting away to rest because she just washed all of the windows on the exterior of the house and she shouldn't have been napping or whatever, but she was very tired. So she's in the room kind of dozing. Yeah, this family also doesn't even bother to call her by her real name. Yes. She'd give her well, a break once in a while. She heard Lizzie call from downstairs, Maggie, come quick, yep. father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. At this point, uh, before running to get Dr. Bowen, Bridget asks... Immediately suspicious to me. Yes. So Bridget comes downstairs and she asks Lizzie, Miss Lizzie, where was you? Didn't I leave the screen door hooked? Um, I think this means that she believed that the screen door was locked. So there was the front door, the cellar door, both were locked. And the screen door she thought was hooked. Lizzie apparently responded with, I was out in the backyard and heard a groan and came in and the screen door was wide open. So again, she's contradicting herself. She said that there's a groan. She told the police that nothing seemed amiss. Mm-hmm. Who knows? So the main question that emerged from the establishment of this timeline, Ooh. and right after this, then the police are called and Adelaide Churchill comes in and Dr. Bowen and all that. Didn't Lizzie say something about helping her dad take his boots off? Yes, and, and we'll we'll get into that next episode too i need to dive in a little deeper because again that's featured in some accounts and not all of them but this is sort of the initial timeline that the police put together because but he did die wearing boots right we'll talk about it (laughs) um but the main question that established from uh, that emerged from the establishment of this timeline was how did these murders occur without the notice of both lizzie and bridget if it was neither of them who committed the murder, or murders, then whatever assassin must have managed to avoid both women for almost two hours during the span of the murders also got inside the first place with the locked doors uh, making things more difficult. So you were correct in noticing that Avi was basically dead for at least an hour before Andrew even got home. So you're going to assume that the killer doesn't leave and come back. Right. So somehow sneaks in twice. So he's he or she or they, they're just um, hiding in a closet, maybe? Like, where did they go? For at least an hour and a half. Yes. While these women are wandering around the house and Andrew comes home and he's walking around the house, he goes into the bedroom, just missing the guest room by the grace of God. Not for him. But like, how do you... Yeah, Lizzie's, Not get noticed. Liz, Lizzie's walking around looking for fishing lures. Yes, she's wandering the premises looking for iron. The screen door at the side of the house was usually in Bridget's eyeline as she moved about the home doing her chores. And she was, of course, washing the exterior windows, which again makes things more complicated. She didn't see anyone coming inside the house from the outside. And she was on the outside. No, although she... When you're outside of a house, you don't have a 360 no, of course, view of it. No, of course. And neither woman say uh, they heard a struggle when Abby was killed. And even if Abby was completely stunned, she would have made a sound as she hit the floor. 
Unfortunately, much fuss was made over the fact that Abby was over 200 pounds when she died. But in an old wooden house, that's a weight that you would hear collapsing, you know, like a dead weight hitting the floor above you. Yeah, the only thing I'll say is she didn't fall all the way over, right? She collapsed to her knees. It's unclear. She She's definitely on her knees and her head's on the ground. And I think there are some, con- I don't know how much they were able to get from her head area. But from what I read in the autopsy report, and it was a little confusing, it did seem like there were contusions on the head that could have been the head hitting the ground. Like, like dead, you know, like boom. So you've got two thumps in that case, plus all the... At least, yeah. Plus all the wax of this little hatchet uh, mm-hmm. in the skull. As the women were questioned, John Morse arrived back to the house, bursting in and demanding, for God's sake, how did this happen? After all, he had only had breakfast with the Bordens just hours previously, and everything had been perfectly normal, if a bit (laughs) mutton-heavy. Apparently, before his death, Andrew... and, And again, this is something that is mentioned in one of the books. I don't know. I don't know. But one of the books says, Andrew... Borden had unhooked the screen door for Morse, leaving it unlocked for him to return after running his errands so they could lunch together around noon. I don't know if Andrew would have done this before he left for his errands, which would have left the screen door unlocked if anyone came in to kill Abby, or if Andrew did it after he run his, he'd run his errands, in which case Abby would have been already dead and that person would have not gotten in through the screen door anyway. What strikes me is I don't know who we would have gotten that detail from because Andrew's dead. And, Probably, yeah, and you're right. The other, the the maid said that the door was, she thought the door was locked. And yeah, so Liz, maybe Lizzie's Lizzie said that, yeah. Well, she's at least very confused. So, as we have learned, Abby Borden did not receive 40 wax, but rather around 19. And Andrew had only received 10 or 11, in contrast to the colloquial 41. But was Lizzie the one who had taken the axe, or hatchet, and brought it down 29 times to end the lives of her parents in bloody horror? Well, we'll be back next time to explore the investigation both on the day of the crime and after, the trial of Lizzie Borden, spoiler alert, and the aftermath of the case that still makes its gruesome mark on Fall River, Massachusetts to this day. Well, it does sound like the one she hated got twice the axe blows, so there is that. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.
It's Poe's Cryptid Corner. Oh, look at that little guy. He loves it. A bizarre video out of Nigeria this week shows what appears to be some sort of strange humanoid creature sitting on a rooftop as onlookers gather to stare at the weird sight. The footage appeared online this week, and though it has been picked up by several Nigerian media outlets, and of course our favorite, Coast to Coast, there haven't really been any details to emerge about where it was filmed, who filmed it, or pretty much any context at all. (laughs) The video features a human-shaped creature sitting on a rooftop during daytime and slowly sliding down the slanted roof. I hope, Carrie, can we give our, we need to give our listeners somewhere to see this. Oh, I I will, I will, don't you worry. Um, This being is wearing, maybe wearing clothing that appears to be the same approximate color of the roof, kind of a, a light raw umber, if you will. But weirdest of all is the head of the supposed creature, which is way too long and goes right into the neck, almost like a a lizard head on a human body. That's what you get is like lizard man, crocodile man. It's very hard to make out any detail whatsoever. The video is so grainy and the person looks so much like a person except for the weird head that Mm -hmm. I, I really just, it could even be just a guy in a baseball cap. But I think at mm, the weirdest... I think it would have to be more of a pointy hat. At, at the end, I felt like he was wearing a baseball cap. But uh, I, I, at the weirdest, I think it's a guy with some kind of a weird hood on his head to make himself look like something weird. Mm. The crowd doesn't seem terrified either. Mm-hmm. There's like a lady laughing and there's a lot of people on there, uh, not filming with their phones, but texting. <laughs> Disinterested. Coast to Coast calls the footage, quote, rather compelling (laughs) by virtue of the truly bizarre entity, which seems to have a body of a human, but the head of an animal, possibly a horse. What? Okay. I I really would have gone like gecko before horse. (laughs) Once the being, I guess, is done sliding down the roof, it gets off and disappears behind a fence in front of the building. Now, no one in the video is screaming or seems frightened. Rather, they're all sort of just staring at the creature and its movements. Quote, While some have suggested that the figure is a mythical creature of some sort, more skeptical observers, Sean, note the laughter that can be heard coming from some of the witnesses and argue that the entity is merely a prankster wearing a mask. So if you'd like to take a look for yourself, dear listener, search Half Man, Half Creature Sighted in Nigeria on YouTube and click the video from Daily Stentor, which should be the first one that comes up. And we'll put up a picture on Instagram as well, but it's so blurry. I don't even think it'll do anything for you, but we'll, we'll throw it up there. I love the idea of Half Man, Half Creature, because like if it was a centaur, right, that's Half Man, Half Horse, that is a creature, right? It's not part creature. Right. Yeah, that's not... That's not normal. This this, this is a creature. Um, But I I love it. Listener, do go find this clip because, well, it's definitely just a guy in a mask and maybe not even in a mask. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe just a little hat. I love to picture that there are these like like beings they look like something that looks like an egyptian god or something with like a snake head um and then he's just sliding down scooting, a tin roof scooting down a roof like poe scooting his butt across the carpet when it's itchy yeah like very slowly too like why why is he doing this <laughs> so yeah that's that's the story out of nigeria anyway oh he's he's beautiful rest in rest in power snake king well, he's dead well yeah once the government gets a look at this video wow
that's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to those of you already joining us on our top levels on Patreon. (laughs) Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakudis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, and Aussie Sean Dance. It's really coming together. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters, it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off-topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends, trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Let's go.